Amen. You can have a seat. What if you found out that you had a week to live? What would be on your to-do list? You know, a lot of people have a bucket list of maybe places they want to visit or something they want to take up and learn how to do, all those things that we'd like to do before we die. But if it was narrowed down to one week, how would that list change? My guess is that some of those destination points that we want to travel to would not be near as important as relationships, opportunities to speak with people, maybe even to say goodbye. We would want to make those connections with people. We think about Jesus last week. He knew. Jesus knew when he was going to die. He knew that the the cross was on its way. He knew all of that. And so for the next few weeks, what I'd like for us to do is to think about those final days of Jesus' life before the crucifixion. Because what he did during those days and what he allowed to be done to him speak a lot about what was important to him. They speak to his nature and his mission. And so as we examine those over the weeks leading up to Easter, I want us to think about what mattered to Jesus most. And to do that, what we're going to do is look at three chapters, Matthew 26, 27, and 28, the last three chapters of that gospel. It'd be a great time for you to take those three chapters and read through them. You could easily get through those chapters each week in this series and really be filled with a sense of what happened in the last days of the life of Jesus and what really mattered to him. So that's where we're going to be over the next few days, next few weeks. You know, most of you will remember, if not the date, you'll remember the news that occurred on April 15th, 2019. You probably saw the pictures of the Cathedral of Notre Dame uh, burning up in Paris. You remember the tower falling and just that edifice, the outside was still standing. And I've got some video footage of the restoration of that, sort of where it stands right now. That cathedral was an amazing and is an amazing building. Started in 1163 and then not finished until the year 1345. So the people who started it knew they would never see it finished. And yet they took on building this house of worship that really was a monument to people coming together and doing something powerful and great for God. The scholars tell us that if it was constructed today in the way that it was constructed then, it would cost something like $6 billion to build. Okay? It was 5,000 oak trees to construct just the roof. Really an amazing building. And it's hard to imagine how much money and time has been spent over the centuries sort of maintaining that building. And it was maintenance that ended up causing the fire that burned so much of it. And the, the restoration cost of that building is going to be something like a billion dollars. They hope to have it done in the next couple years in time for the 2024 Olympics in Paris. Now you contrast that with a building that Leanne and I worshipped in almost exactly nine years ago in the city of Chinoy in Zimbabwe. The White City Church of Christ met in two classrooms of a public school building. I mean, just a block row building with small windows and a gathering of chairs and benches that they could find. The adults in one room, the kids in the room next to us. It couldn't have been much more humble than that. And I think about that, those two settings to worship the same Jesus, the same God, the same risen Lord, the one who went to the cross willingly. Which one, which one was right? Which one sort of exalted God more? Which one brought people into the presence of God in a clearer way? Which one was a better stewardship of the resources that were available to the people who built it? 
And maybe we would answer the questions that I've asked in different ways, depending on you know, what really is emphasized there. But I want us to think a little bit about this today. I want us to think about whether it's right to use resources in a very careful way or maybe sometimes in an extravagant way to honor God. Jesus dealt with that very question in his last days on earth. And we find a record of that in Matthew chapter 26. Jesus goes to Bethany to the place where his friends live. It's a town where Jesus frequented a lot. It seems that in the last week of Jesus' life, what he would do is stay in Bethany overnight, make the short walk to Jerusalem during the day for the festival, and then come back. Bethany is the town of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, Lazarus that Jesus raised. We know these people from the gospel stories. And this tells us that one evening he ate at the home of Simon, Le Simon the leper. The story goes like this, Matthew 28, no, 26, verse 6. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. So Jesus is eating a meal in the home of Simon the leper that we never hear referred to in any other passage in the New Testament outside the story. All we know is that he was a leper, which means probably Jesus had healed him at some time. We don't know that for sure, but he couldn't have leprosy at this moment because he wouldn't be allowed to invite people in. So sometime along the way, he's been a leper. Maybe he's related to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus because they're eating in his home. Some have conjectured that he's their father. Could be. We don't know. What we do know is that a woman comes in with a very valuable object filled with a very valuable substance, okay? And what we're told in the Gospel of John is that this is Mary. Matthew doesn't tell us that. But she comes in with maybe her most treasured possession, a possession that can only be used once because these jars were constructed with a very long neck and they were sealed up with this expensive perfume inside. And the way it worked was when you finally wanted to use it and you might save it for years and years, you would break the neck of that bottle, can't be resealed, and you would use that perfume in that moment. So it would have to happen right then. And then, then it's over. The bottle's broken, the perfume is used, this valuable possession that you have is gone. And Mary chose to use it on this day on Jesus. And here we're told that Mary used it to, to anoint his feet, his head, but in John we find it's his feet, so maybe his whole body, we don't know exactly, but she uses it on Jesus. And what we also find is that the, the actual word that's used by Matthew is, is not perfume, it's myrrh. And maybe that makes you think of another story. It's found in Matthew chapter 2 where the wise men bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Myrrh was a substance that was used to anoint bodies for burial. And also as a perfume. So what was she thinking? We get a glimpse of that as we go through the story and hear what Jesus had to say. But as she does this, this act of worship that speaks to her devotion to Jesus. She's probably giving her most valuable possession to Jesus and she'll not ever have it again. The disciples don't like it. Verse 8, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant, Matthew tells us. Why this waste, they ask. And we think, how could they be so callous? Here this woman has brought in her most treasured possession 
using it to anoint Jesus, and the disciples can only say, what a waste. That seems like strange behavior by the disciples. But what they're thinking is, is, man, this could have been used for something else. Why is she coming in here using something so valuable on Jesus? And it goes on to say, this is what they were thinking, verse 9. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Now, before we're too hard on the disciples, there's a couple things that come to my mind. First of all, Matthew could have been like John. When John tells this story, he says, Judas said that. Judas said, could have sold this and given it to the poor. Now, we know Judas was also the one who was holding the money for the disciples, and occasionally he put his hand in the till, and he took a little off the top. So if there's more money in, there's more money to take. So maybe Judas wants to get a little more. Maybe he's less concerned about good stewardship. But when Matthew tells the story, when the disciples saw this, reminded that Matthew is one of those disciples. So he's saying, in essence, when we saw this, we said, why didn't she do this? Why didn't she just sell this and give it to the poor? Matthew's taking this on himself with his associates. This is what we were thinking. And the second thing that I think about in this is before we're too quick to condemn the disciples, Maybe some of us need to think back when someone has done something extravagant. Maybe they've given a gift for something that seems not absolutely necessary, sort of on the top to the church or maybe the school or some other charitable organization. And we've thought, man, that seems like sort of a waste that they're giving all that money for that thing. Or maybe, why did the church spend so much money on that, right? They could have, and then we've all probably used this, they could have just done that, they could have used that money to help people. This is one of two phrases that are sort of incorrectly used from this passage. Because there have been people, just like the apostles, who have said, Why didn't they build that nice building? They could have built something much similar and given the rest of the money to the poor. But that's not the only one that's been misused. Here's Jesus' response beginning in verse 10. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. And that last line is the one that people have used almost as an excuse. Hey, we're always going to have the poor. We can't solve that problem. There's no way that we can throw enough money at poverty to solve the problem. So why even try? Jesus said it, right? You always have the poor. So why worry about it? Now, Jesus also says she's done a beautiful thing, right? So he's he's really getting at the point that this woman has has acted in a worshipful way. And the other thing we need to remember, and I think we forget when we read this story, is that this story is found very near the beginning of Matthew chapter 26. And it is in real contrast with what we read in Matthew 25. You probably know that story. It's a scene of judgment. And Jesus says there's going to be a day when you're going to come and And I'm going to divide you up between sheep and goats. And I'm going to say to one group, man, you are blessed because when you saw me hungry, you fed me. 
When you knew I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When you saw I didn't have clothes, you provided me with clothes. And that group's going to say, Jesus, we never saw you like that. And he said, when you do this for the least of these, you've done it for me. And he's going to turn to the other group, and it's going to be just the opposite. You saw me hungry. You didn't give me food. You didn't give me water when I was thirsty. You didn't give me clothes when I didn't have any. And they're going to say, Jesus, we never saw you like that. And he's going to say, yeah, but you ignored those who were in need. And if you had done that, you would have been taking care of me. And so here we have Jesus. Matthew 25. You better take care of those in need. Matthew 26. You're always going to have the poor. And so maybe we want to say to Jesus, which is it? I mean, Jesus, what should we do? Should we... Should we do things with very careful stewardship so that we can only do what's utilitarian, the basic building that we need to have for worship, our classrooms, the very basic things we can do in our own lives for you, and then use everything else to help those in need? Are we supposed to do some extravagant things just because they're done for you? Jesus, which is it? Jesus continues. When she poured this perfume on my body... She did it to prepare me for burial. This myrrh was used just for that. And whether she knew that Jesus was about to die or not, Jesus knew. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And here we are today, 2,000 years later, telling this story in memory of her. Jesus was right. So what do we do with this story? I mean, we are faced with choices all the time. As churches, as individuals, we are faced with a choice. How do I use the resources that God has given me? Should I do something very simple and then use the money to help other people? Should I do something extravagant for God because it's for God? What should we do? And it seems to me that what Jesus is telling us as we look between these two passages that acts of worship can be both practical and beautiful. There's a place for both. There's a place for us to be very careful and do what is practical, and there's a place for us to do what is a beautiful act of worship. You know, we live in a culture that in many ways is very pragmatic. We are a very practical people. If we hear someone get up and talk like this or in a classroom or anywhere else, we, we think there should be some practical application. What can I do with this information? And really, that's a good thing, right? Because sermons, lessons, whatever environment you're in for teaching can become unmoored from everyday life to the point that it's just learning facts that have nothing to do with how you live life. And so we've said things need to be practical, and they do. But there is also a place for beauty. And there is also a place, when it comes to our relationship with God, for some extravagance. I mean, there is a place for a very simple worship building that is just a room filled with chairs, and there's a place for a room that has a really large stained glass cross right in the front. There were cheaper ways to build this building than to have that. 
But when we walk in, we are reminded that this is a place that was designed for worshiping Jesus. This is a place that focuses on the cross. Just like this meal, just like Mary coming in and anointing Jesus in this way reminded everyone that this is about Jesus dying. We are reminded when we walk in this room that Jesus went to the cross for us. So is it all about sort of utilitarian, practical ways that we can do good in the world? Yes. Is it also about extravagant acts of worship that in some way seem unnecessary but express that we love God with everything we have? Yes, and everything in between. And part of living the Christian life and saying, you know what, there's a place for me to serve other people and there's a place for me to serve God sometimes in surprising and even extravagant ways because this is a powerful God who has in a very powerful way done something extravagant that I don't deserve. Jesus on the cross. And this is a God who's done something very practical for me. He's, he's offered me what I needed the most. Forgiveness of sin and eternal life. So here we are, worshiping. And our acts of worship can be very practical and very beautiful. And it's up to us to spend our lives navigating just what that means and how we use the resources God has given us to make them acts of worship. Let's pray together. God, help us just like Jesus, to be concerned about those who don't have food, who don't have water, who don't have shelter, who don't have clothing. God, remind us over and over that you have given us resources that we can use to help the people around us. And God, remind us of your extravagant love for us and the ways that we can worship you with the means that we have. And God, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.